90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you doing? Oh, still slogging through all that grading. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Only if, hey, n- next week you have uh, several days of vacation to catch up, right? That's what we do in academia with vacation. Exactly. exactly. Is it bad that I'm looking forward to days where no one walks into my office so I can work? Like, I guess that's when you know you love your job is that when you're excited about vacation days so you can go into the office. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, it's yeah. it's a really strange, strange system that we live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty um, masochistic, I guess. <laughs> Sad- sadistic. Wait, that's what I meant. Sadistic. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sorry, kids. Um, what have you been up to this week? Oh, well, let me tell you, we're recording late because I went to a talk tonight and I was so excited about it and it was everything that I hoped that it could be. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um. Yeah. Every nerd's dream, uh, at least of our-ish generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's probably true. I found out that some of the that people now entering grad school weren't uh, so much as influenced by this, but I got to see Bill Nye talk. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Um, I'm super jealous of it, and I thought we wouldn't record tonight because you'd been waiting in line for him to like sign your glasses or something. <laughs> But I'm disappointed that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it was uh, it was great. He came to Penn State. We had a huge auditorium, so I think it was like 2,500 people or so. Uh, so he didn't do any kind of, you know, selfies or signing, anything like that. There were just too many people, and his talk was like an hour and a half long. That's awesome, because I feel like so often, you know, you might get disappointed by seeing your childhood idol if their talk sucks or is short or whatever, but it sounds like he really took the time to connect with the audience a lot, and that's super awesome. It makes me very jealous. He did, and it was funny. We were constantly laughing. Uh, it was great to see. You know, you always hear crowds cheering for rock stars or something to come out on the stage, <laughs> uh, but it was wonderful to hear twenty-five people chanting "Bill, Bill, Bill, Bill" before he came out on stage. Uh, <laughs> wow, that is awesome. There were people there in lab coats, bow ties, Planetary Society T-shirts. Uh, now, you say there were wonderful. there were people there in those things. Were you one of those people? I did not wear my lab coat. I seriously thought about it because I do have a light blue lab coat, maybe because it's the same color that his was on the show. (laughs) All right, Flint Lockwood. Um, (laughs) That's awesome. And I'm super disappointed in you, I will say that, yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't wear it. Yeah. But no, it was it was a really interesting talk and it had a huge story arc. It started with uh, a little bit of his family history and his dad working on Wake Island and being a prisoner of war. Oh, wow. Uh, went through his uh, dad's kind of obsession with sundials and then uh- talked about putting sundials on the Mars landers. Okay, cool. And, you know, just then talked about the Martian atmosphere and about halfway through the talk made this connection to CO2 in the Martian atmosphere and other planets, got into climate change, talked about uh, electric cars, batteries, alternative energy, uh, really made a huge circle that all connected very nicely at the end, saying we need innovation. And, you know, 20 years between World War One and World War Two, we went from fighting on horses to fighting in tanks. Uh, 20 years ago, the internet didn't exist, so why is it so impossible to think that in 20 years we can move to a uh, sustainable energy future? Hmm. Wow, that's interesting, actually. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was really great. He kept using the phrase, you know, change the world and emphasizing it uh, quite a bit, along with a few other little funny things, like, you know, acting like an old man, talking about the 70s. Uh, <laughs> awesome <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah that's sad you said that there are some grad students that didn't know who he was I mean that, that just crushes me a little bit I mean he was still a little uh, I liked Beekman's world a lot so if anyone's out there is roughly my age um, I was more into that than Bill Nye but obviously he's a huge influence though yeah and you know I think 
the grad students, new grad students and undergrads, there were a lot there that probably watched the show in syndication. Uh, there are several people that I talked to that uh, weren't there, but said, well, I, I knew who he was, but I never really saw the show. I didn't watch it. I wasn't you know, heavily influenced by it. But for me, that was a really big influence yeah. in my childhood. I, I wouldn't miss Bill Nye after school at four o'clock. Yeah. Wow. That's, um, I looked it up just to see and his show started in 93. And so, yeah, I imagine there are quite a few students who were born around that time that are in grad school now. So yeah. (laughs) Yes, there are. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, that was, I mean, there were a hundred episodes or so, I believe. Mm -hmm. Just an incredible volume of material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. Um, well, hopefully, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson is doing that for people now. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I know some people that have kids that are kind of the middle school age that watched Neil deGrasse Tyson's Cosmos series right. and really yep. got a lot out of it. Yeah, uh, of course, they don't realize so, that it's been done before by Carl Sagan, but that's okay. <laughs> At least it's well, getting. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, all roads lead to Carl Sagan, it seems like. Bill Nye had a class with him. He talked a little bit about Carl Sagan. Oh, no kidding. Uh, Tonight, yeah, because Carl Sagan came up with the light sail idea originally, which now Bill Nye, as CEO of the Planetary Society, has helped execute. Right. Uh, and, yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson was a Sagan student. Uh, so all, all cosmology and really good science outreach roads lead back to Sagan. So I'm wondering now who these roads are going to lead to for our future science communicators. Are they going to lead back to Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson, or are they going to lead somewhere that yeah. we we don't even think of right now yeah that is true um that will be interesting to see actually yeah so i mean now that i've waffled on about that for you know five <laughs> minutes <laughs> hey you got a nerd crush it's okay it's all right oh <laughs> uh, no it was it was it was really really wonderful uh, we'd actually placed bets on whether he would come out in a lab coat or not he did not oh wow that's uh, actually quite surprising <laughs> <laughs> but no it was it was a great talk i highly encourage anybody uh, if there's an opportunity anywhere nearby, to go see him give a talk. He's a very dynamic speaker, very engaging. That's awesome. Super jealous. And, uh, yeah, there will be pictures on my Twitter account, so of make sure if you're course. interested, you go check that out. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we going to talk about today? Yeah, this isn't uh, – I don't know if anything is as exciting as that, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is going to be uh, a little bit of switching gears. But I wanted to talk about something that, does have to do with science communication, and that's earthquake magnitude scales, because I've heard a lot about this recently with recent large earthquakes, and it's frustrating. (laughs) I imagine that in the (laughs) springtime, we're going to have this same uh, show, except about, you know, tornado magnitude scales, but anyway. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that could be... Because there's a, a lot of, of, ball of wax. there's a lot of confusion on the part of the public, even the public that is, you know, either really close to earthquake country or really close to tornado country. They actually, well, it's not that they don't understand it; it's that we do a really crappy job of explaining it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it it is fundamentally a communication problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's our um, problem. So. It is. I've I've asked in one of our reading seminars where we were talking about induced earthquakes. You know, all these papers are getting published in scientific journals that say the kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I just flat out ask the question to all the attendees in the seminars: Why, as geoscientists, are we so awful at communication? <laughs> and nobody had a really good answer. They kind of looked at their shoes, which might have been you know the answer. Yeah, that that is exactly the answer. <laughs> That is exactly right. We can talk to each other fine, I think, too. So I think it's maybe we need to go to, you know, English classes that focus on writing or communication classes that focus on speaking and ask them why we don't do a good job. Yeah. And I mean, that's part of what inspires us to start this podcast, right? Uh, Yes, exactly. Um, Not that we're not super nerds because we totally are, but, you know, maybe someone will listen to us and understand us. Right. I mean, you know, we're up to maybe maybe four or five listeners now. So Exactly. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> yeah. Well, so earthquake magnitudes, I I wanted to go over some of the basic types and some common misconceptions and really the reason that we even need them in the first place. Because mm-hmm. you might say, why do we make the scale 
that has seemingly arbitrary numbers, like a magnitude five earthquake. What does that even mean? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I know why we do it because we're scientists and we like to stick numbers on things. But it's important. Oh, well, there, well yeah. there are plenty of numbers that we can stick on earthquakes. But the challenge with earthquakes is, and this is an instrumentation challenge, this is a challenge to many aspects, they span a huge dynamic range, uh, meaning that they go over a lot of scales. I mean, so when you can, oh, see them, you can see them around the world, right? So that's a lot of different types of data you're picking up based on where you are in comparison to the earthquake. That's number one range, right? Yeah, considering that anything over a high magnitude 4, magnitude 5, we can see worldwide, and that's really not much shaking locally. It's definitely not much shaking in Pennsylvania when there's (laughs) a magnitude 4.8 on the other side of the globe. Right, yeah, exactly. But you still see it because our sensors are so good now. Yeah, and we actually measure ground movement from about 1 nanometer at a period of, you know, seconds to hundreds of seconds, up to one meter when you're close to very large earthquakes. That's crazy. So that's nine orders of magnitude. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty big, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, so a human hair, you know, tens of microns across, nanometers, three orders of magnitude smaller than that, up to a meter, so something that you can stretch your arms out and (laughs) think about. Exactly. And we measure frequencies that are really widely ranging, too. Everything from 1 times 10 to the minus 5 hertz up to 1,000 hertz. So several orders of magnitude there. Um, Yeah, and we put all kinds of different numbers on each of those kind of ways that we measure it, too. So as you're going to tell us, I mean, this could get pretty confusing, especially to someone who doesn't look at it every day. Yeah. And I mean, one nice thing about magnitudes is they give us simple numbers uh, to talk about, because who wants to talk about numbers that are, you know, six digits long or (laughs) have eight decimal places in front of them? Yes. You you don't want to do that. They're not convenient numbers. to talk. It's a lot easier to talk about a magnitude 6.8 earthquake. Uh, Right. Exactly. Because once you get into like the amount of joules released, those numbers barely make sense to us because they're so big. So they're definitely not going to make sense to a public, which, you know, needs to consume this information to understand what has happened and what can happen in the future. Yeah. So, I mean, do you have some kind of feel for what maybe a magnitude you know, five, six, seven, eight earthquake is just from seeing the reports come in? Um, well, from personal experience, um, <laughs> here in Oklahoma, <laughs> which is the most seismically active place in the nation, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, it was really interesting when we were having our sort of spate of earthquakes because fours and stuff, yeah, they'd shake stuff, they'd shake pictures on the wall, and then we had our big one, our 5.6, I think, is what it finally wound up being, and that was, you could sort of feel like rolling, we, we actually made it outside during that one, and you could feel feel ground rolling and so it's like that was an order of magnitude larger than the fours that we had become accustomed to experiencing so it was actually quite noticeable um that's the strongest one i've ever been in so i don't know above that but well yeah i mean so a magnitude five earthquake which you experienced one that's quite a bit larger is actually just considered moderate it was Uh, really scary (laughs) yeah So a magnitude six is, you know, pretty strong. Seven is major and eight and above are great. Uh, They don't happen all that often, Mm -hmm. but we, they do significant damage. And, you know, we talked about the occurrence of great earthquakes some when we had Chuck Amon on. Right. Yeah. So the largest earthquake that we have recorded in a, a modern seismological way Uh, so since 1900, roughly, Mm -hmm. is a magnitude 9.5 that occurred in 1960 in Chile. So along that subduction zone that creates those big old earthquakes, because they have a lot of, you know, strong and above that happened down there, right? Yeah. And 
we won't really talk about right now why subduction zones generate huge earthquakes. That's probably a whole nother show. Or two. <laughs> or two. And fascinating. Mm-hmm. But to give you a point of reference, the Japan earthquake of 2011 that did all the damage at the Fukushima reactors, that is number four on that list of largest earthquakes since 1900. Okay. So big big numbers we're talking and i mean the amount of damage it does has to do with a lot of you know where it is in relation to humans right because that's what we talk about when we talk about damage and so the scales take all that stuff the different scales take those different things into account right yeah so there are a lot of complicating factors and there are still problems as we'll talk about with our magnitude scales that we use uh, but any magnitude scale is really based on how what the amplitude of the ground motion is, how much the ground moved, but you have to correct for all kinds of things like decreasing amplitude with distance because of attenuation and geometric spreading and all kinds of things. Because mm-hmm. you can't get your little sensors, you know, down right where the earthquake ruptures, so you have to understand a lot about that geologic environment to correctly make those assumptions. Well, right. And if I estimate the magnitude of an earthquake uh, that occurred, let's say, in Chile, here in Pennsylvania, and I estimate it from a station that's in Australia, I should get about the same answer. But the signals are going to be vastly different amplitudes because we're much different distance-wise from the earthquake, right? So we have to correct for that. Right. So what it turns out like is all of our formulas look something like a logarithm of the amplitude over time and then these distance corrections and a regional scale factor, which is a good way of saying a fudge factor. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Um, When I was trying to, you know, sort of figure out what we were all going to talk about, and I I thought that that might be what regional scale factor meant. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a really scientific way to say fudge factor. (laughs) That's nice. That's nice. Um, so when we talk about earthquakes, I think the first thing I can sort of say, I mean, obviously I'm a geologist, but I'm not an earthquake geophysicist like you are, but the Richter scale is probably the first thing that every layman is going to say when they say, how do you measure earthquakes? Richter scale, right? And has that one been around the longest? Yeah. So the Richter scale, uh, was like 1935, but before that, in the early 30s, uh, Kiyu Wadadi, who's a Japanese scientist, noted that larger earthquakes mean larger ground motion and that that motion decays with distance in a similar way, no matter what the size of the earthquake. So he kind of hinted that there's some way to compare earthquake sizes based on distance and amplitude, uh, but it was left to Charles Richter in 1935 to develop what he called the local magnitude scale, what later became known as the Richter scale. Mm-hmm. And that's just a, I mean, it was developed for Southern California earthquakes. It was developed, you know, uh, measurements so far away on a certain type of seismometer uh, called a Wood Anderson seismometer. And it was very specific to that area, but it got applied worldwide eventually and started being called the Richter scale. And unfortunately, that name has stuck for everything. It has. (laughs) Um, I know my intro students are always confused when they're like, that's not the only one. And we start to talk about Mercalli scales and what's that means, which we'll get into coming up. But yeah, everyone just calls it that. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I think especially if you're in the news media and you say Richter scale and you're not talking about historical seismology, the nearest seismologist is required by the law to come hit you on the head with a rock (laughs) hammer. Or with a Wood Anderson seismometer, which is not tiny. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, stop that. It's it's not right. There's been some outreach. Uh, in fact, Lucy Jones was on NPR not too long ago from the USGS talking about this. Uh, <clears throat> but what does hold true is that each magnitude difference, so magnitude 4 to 5, or 5 to a 6, represents a 10 times jump, or order of magnitude jump, in the recorded amplitude. Okay, so hence our logarithmic scale. Hence our logarithmic scale. So when it's a magnitude bigger, the ground actually moved 10 times as much, not twice as much. Right. Also, stop stop that. Yes. Uh, (laughs) That does not mean that the energy is 10 times as much. The energy is actually 30-odd times as much 
for other reasons. <laughs> Which is something that a lot of geologists don't know either, actually. <laughs> that it's not yes. logarithmic energy, it's logarithmic amplitude. And that's a that's an embarrassing problem, I think. But again, that's probably a rant for another show. <laughs> it is. But the cool thing, I think uh, maybe it was last show, maybe it was one before, we mentioned nomograms. Mm-hmm. And one way to compute Richter magnitude was with a nomogram that used the P to S wave arrival time and the amplitude. Which we still use in earthquake labs in intro geology today, I feel like. And students hate them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it, it is one way to do it. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's not used anymore. It's often quoted by news agencies, unfortunately. Yep. Uh, because we look at earthquakes that occur other places in the world, and all the Wood Anderson seismometers in operation practically are in museums. Right. Yep, exactly. Though we can, and we still do sometimes, actually apply that instrument response to modern instruments to make the modern instrument look have or have the frequency response of a Wood Anderson. Right. So you can say a word that lots of people think they understand in terms of right. Richter scale magnitudes. Yeah. Hmm. But Well, what else should we use then? <laughs> yeah, so there are several other scales. The body wave scale is the first one I want to talk about. And just like the name implies, we compute it by using uh, fast-moving body waves, which is generally the P wave, so mm -hmm. the compressional wave. You know, like if you kind of pulse a slinky and you get this compressional wave that travels down it like a sound wave. Right, and that's the that's the first one that you get when you're recording an earthquake right the primary wave yeah so that is the first arrival uh, and generally so there's no real standard but most of the time you try to look at the first five seconds of the arrival mm -hmm. and you look at a p wave that has a period of about one second okay uh, one second is an interesting number because right around there is where a lot of buildings resonate and we obviously oh. care about that Interesting. I imagine yeah. there are lots of studies that corroborate that, but that's just sort of a back-of-the-envelope calculation, I'm guessing. Yeah, and there's all kinds of rules of thumb that the structural engineers will tell you about uh, how many floors a building has multiplied by some magic factor gives you the resonance of the building, roughly. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so there's all kinds of neat things like that. But one of the problems with body wave magnitude is... After you get about 100 degrees of distance from the earthquake, there's a problem. And degrees of distance is a weird way to think about distance, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, we do it in seismology a lot, though. All we're talking about is if you were to draw a line from the center of the earth to where the earthquake is and to where your seismometer is, what is the angle between those lines? Okay, that's easy to think about. Yeah, so if all earthquakes and all seismometers were on the equator, it would be the difference in longitude. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so once you get past 100 degrees uh, distance, you actually have diffractions around the core that make it difficult to, to use this magnitude. Gotcha. Okay. And, I mean, it's not always easy to pick out, you know, the... The P wave, right? The very, I mean, I always thought that this no. was super easy, but after looking at some of your data, I'm like, oh, I see why this is much harder than than I would think it would be. Because <laughs> it's not like the little needle's just quiet and then it jumps and then it's quiet. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff being picked up. <laughs> there's a lot of things being picked up. Uh, there's a lot of anthropogenic noise. Yeah. There's a station at Disneyland that's practically useless. <laughs> um, but <laughs> It's just there for fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's all kinds of complicating factors, and especially for smaller earthquakes, uh, that can be an issue. Interesting. So, another magnitude that we can use is called the surface wave magnitude. Okay. And, and these are the big ones, right? As you would creatively guess. <laughs> do what? I said, and these are the big ones, right? <laughs> yeah, so as you would creatively guess, these are from surface waves. <laughs> And those are the large ones. So these are waves traveling along the surface. Uh, so Rayleigh waves, love waves, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Generally, the Rayleigh waves are the largest. And all you have to do is look at the seismogram and find the biggest thing from zero. <laughs> 
which is much easier than picking out the tiny perturbation that indicates the very first compressional wave arrival. <laughs> right. And there's also a kind of a pseudo standard for this, uh, that you look for the largest Rayleigh wave that has about a 20-second period. But we can just filter the data and then pick out the largest thing. It's pretty easy, and you can automate it. I hope that everyone listening is picking up on the fact that geophysics is a lot of pseudoscience, right? <laughs> your words, your words. I, no, I... Yeah, so geophysics, like a lot of geology, really, you have to do a lot of approximation and understanding the system fundamentally to make sense of really complicated data. Well, and we know geophysicists don't like to touch rocks, so it makes it even harder for you guys to understand the system. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I hope hope that you're going to post a seismogram up for people who aren't really used to looking at it in any capacity more than an intro geology lab, because they're... I got a big appreciation of them when I looked at real ones. (laughs) Yes. So I'll I'll put some links to real science. Also put some links to uh, ground motion animations so you can see these different waves come through in 3D. Oh, yeah. That's super fun. Uh, But But that's not all we have to talk about, right? There's still a ton of other scales that we haven't discussed yet. And we'll really only talk about one more scale, but before we talk about that scale, I want to talk about what motivated it, which is the problems with the last two that we've talked about. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so one thing is, we have to assume something about the geology, and generally you assume some kind of global velocity model. Right, which knowing geology seems like a bad idea. <laughs> well, on, on, a, on a planetary scale, it's perfectly good. Okay, okay. On a local scale... Not so much. Ah. So there are still local magnitude scales that are derived for specific areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, it's not uncommon for some events to have, you know, five, ten different magnitudes reported. Wow. Well, I mean, you've got to imagine, you know, some place where your bedrock is right at the surface is going to shake a lot differently than something that has 10,000 feet of sed rocks underneath it. So... That's actually quite heartening <laughs> that they take those kind of differences into account. Yeah, so those are called side effects, and <laughs> they are the bane of existence for a lot of seismology. <laughs> hey, if the Earth was super homogenous, we probably wouldn't have earthquakes at all, so you're welcome, guys. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the other thing, and this always drives me nuts. So I said earlier that we're taking the logarithm of amplitude over time mm-hmm. or over period. Mm-hmm. You cannot take the logarithm of a ratio that has units. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. You get non-physical units out, right? It right. doesn't doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. but we do it anyway because <laughs> Mathland. If you have numbers and plug them into a log, you'll get numbers out. It doesn't know anything about the units, and that's mm. fine because it gets us the the scale that we need, a scale that makes sense and has tractable numbers. And we just kind of sweep the units under the rug. (laughs) See, physics students, those units weren't important anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I always argue about, you know, making sure your equations are unit consistent, all that. Here, if you do that, you'll drive yourself nuts. Exactly, so they don't matter. Okay. (laughs) Excellent. Well, the other complicated effect is magnitude saturation. And I, did you guys talk about this in intro? No. <laughs> uh, as you can imagine, my intro focuses a lot more on, um, well, I can't even focus on paleomagnetism because that's even more confusing. So we mostly it's, focus on rivers because they're pretty. Hey, you want to talk about uh, some pseudo stuff, that, that paleomagnetism. <laughs> we'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the... Body wave magnitude, once the earthquake gets above about a 6.2, okay. the earthquake can keep getting larger and the magnitude does not grow. Okay. And for the surface wave magnitude, that magic number is about 8.3. Wow. So if you have a 9.5, it's going to read 6.2 on the body magnitude scale and 8.3 on the surface wave magnitude scale. So, roughly. How, so how do you figure out you've got a 9.5? Well, so that has to do with the way that the radiation falls off at different frequencies. Uh, But we can actually go 
to physical calculations uh, that we'll talk about in just a second that use fault physics, you know, that scary word, (laughs) to come up with some kind of magnitude. Uh, Another complicating factor, uh, real quick, another problem is geometry. So sometimes the energy is directed from a rupture. Like we call it radiation pattern effects. Mm-hmm. Which sounds fancy. I know people in Oklahoma are familiar with this. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, and the other thing is, I said that there are multiple magnitudes reported for events. They don't all give you the same answer. Generally, they're hmm. close. Okay. But <laughs> it's not uncommon for the body wave and the surface wave magnitude to not be exactly equal and really we would want them to be we tried to calibrate them to be mm-hmm. uh, but it turns out that can be useful because it helps you discriminate whether you're looking at an earthquake or a nuclear bomb oh okay because nuclear bombs are similar they are equal or well no so earthquakes ideally they would be very similar oh, okay gotcha and gotcha. if your, your magnitudes fall significantly off that one-to-one line Mm -hmm. yeah then 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 there's a good chance that it was an explosion yeah okay that's interesting and that's actually i mean seismometers pick these up all the time that was one of the things if i mean well everyone remembers but the oklahoma city bombing um back in 1995 that was one of the reasons that they knew there was more than one bomb was because of the seismometers at the university picked up the arrivals of these of the shock waves, so. Yeah, and, I mean, a lot of catastrophic events have been seen on seismometers. The Russian meteorite explosion, mm-hmm. uh, yep. the events on September 11th, yep. uh, pretty much any large explosion. But that's one way that we do nuclear test ban monitoring. And, mm-hmm. in fact, there are people that uh, do that for careers. Right. Yep. Interesting. But... So one person's noise is another person's, you know, data. Yeah, uh, once again, yep. <laughs> same story. <laughs> but the last magnitude, so I know you mentioned Mercalli, which isn't really a magnitude, it's a shaking intensity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we can talk about that at some point. But the last magnitude scale I want to talk about is the one that we actually talk about when we're talking to other seismologists. <laughs> the secret one that we're the general public isn't allowed to know about, right? Right, so it's called moment magnitude, or M sub W, uh, if you see it notated anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it comes from the seismic moment, which is directly calculated from how far the fault slipped, how big the area of the fault that slipped was, and how squishy the rock is, what we call its modulus. So that's taking into effect all those local geology things and sort of putting it all on one you know, a comparable scale. Well, so to actually, (laughs) well, the moment comes from, it's literally just multiplying slip, area of slip, and modulus. Right. That doesn't really count for any geology. That's just fault physics. Bulk modulus of the rock isn't going to count for any of the geology? Well, okay. No, you guys probably only model, like, soft rock and hard rock, right? You're not going to look at... (laughs) I, I mean, I know that some people that do fault modeling really get into that. I mostly say the modulus of everything that matters for seismology is 30 GPA. Wow. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're killing me here. Like, I thought that, you know, I didn't think geophysicists liked rocks. You're right. Okay, carry on. <laughs> well, like I said, there are finite fault modelers that do other things. But so then you do plug this moment that we get mm-hmm. into a formula that looks something like a magnitude formula with fudge factors and all that. And you get out a moment magnitude. But the cool thing about moment magnitude is it doesn't really saturate. So now you can discriminate between these big and medium earthquakes where you couldn't before. Right. I mean, that's one problem. If you have an event that's kind of on the edge of saturation uh, and you want to know if it's an explosion or not, well, you probably can't. Right. Uh, anyway, so this works for large earthquakes. It's the one that we talk about, you know, in the hallways, like you said, the secret, <laughs> the secret magnitude. It's probably the one you hear quoted most of the time as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nice thing is this uses more of the waveforms because we have to do some more modeling. Uh, so we're not just looking at one peak. 
Would, or one wave. Which has given you a better, uh, like, a better picture of the earthquake, right? Since you're using all of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it can also be somewhat automated as a numerical inversion. Okay. Which, uh, there's a lot of earthquakes. Notice I said somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, real data is noisy, and no matter how good your script is, as soon as you throw real data at it, it will break, and you'll fix it. And the next time something else will break it and you'll fix it. And eventually you'll have it running and whoever wrote it retires and then something <laughs> breaks it. Yep. <laughs> That's just how it goes. But <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, yes, I mean, so the Harvard uh, GCMT catalog. Uh, so you can get these global moment tensor solutions emailed to you every time there's an earthquake. I do get lots of emails every day. Uh, that have kind of what the focal mechanism was or how the earthquake slipped and its magnitude. Uh, so it's worth subscribing. I'll put a link that you can search the catalog. You can also sign up to where the USGS will email or text you every single time there's an earthquake above some threshold that you set. And you can set day and night thresholds. Oh, nice. So you don't get, you know, a text about a magnitude three in the middle of the night. Yeah, which here happens a lot so right um you know here in but the, here in the middle of the craton <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i mean there are tons of resources that you can go to to learn more about this i'm going to put some links in the show notes there are all kinds of books that i i'm going to say vary in difficulty <laughs> uh <laughs> that's probably an understatement but yeah so there's some really good popular science books that anyone could pick up and read at bedtime with no issues. You don't need to have a pen and paper in front of you. <laughs> uh, one of the ones that I really like is called Earthquake Storms. Hmm. Well, <laughs> I've, su- I've suggested it to a few people. The title is awful, but the book is great. <laughs> you probably picked it up because you like meteorology and then we're disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, they actually talk a lot about a lot of historical seismology in there. And it's a really interesting background uh, focusing on you know, the, the giant San Francisco earthquake. Gotcha. Uh, definitely worth picking up and reading. I've loaned it to several people and everybody's enjoyed it. If you want to get more into the nitty gritty, uh, there's a book by Peter Shear on seismology. Uh, it's a textbook. You'll need a notepad and a semester. And a case of beer. (laughs) But you could go all the way through it. Uh, It does have some pretty, what I think are very lucid explanations. And it would be probably an undergraduate level textbook, I would say. Okay. Uh, Then there's a book by Stein and Y Session that is probably my favorite book on general seismology. Price is going up on Amazon. I don't think they're doing another printing yet, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, but it is a significant investment to sit down and read. It's very dense, but it is incredibly complete. Cool. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a really good book. And also, I'm pretty sure it's that book that has a reference to Jean-Luc Picard, as in Star Trek, <laughs> in the text. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I'm on board with that. Any, uh, any Trek references, I'm all there. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, that's, that's kind of the thoughts I had on magnitude and one to, uh, one to make sure that people know Richter magnitude isn't a thing. (laughs) It's one of your personal crusades, I imagine. Well, you and a lot of other (laughs) seismologists probably. (laughs) Yeah. And I know that Real seismologists are saying, oh, you're an experimentalist, and yes, I am, but I'm, I am I want to help on this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's the same sort of thing when we had, you know, really huge tornadoes here, and people started saying they were F6 tornadoes, and that doesn't even exist, and there's a lot of public misconception that people can get really sort of, you know, people hold on to these really strongly i had some lady after um the may 3rd 1999 tornado who was basically calling me a liar and crying because she knew that tornado was an f7 (laughs) so 
Wow. Yeah. It's yeah. It, you really it, it sucks because that's our fault. You know, it's not her mm-hmm. fault. It's our fault that we can't tell people better what we're talking about. So it is a big deal, really, if people say Richter scale, because that's not not what you're talking about anymore. Right. Yeah. But that, but that could be just my my bitter personality coming through, which was why I picked the fun paper I did. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we'll go to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. And yeah, we we need to get some music for that. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. If anybody out there has uh, some suggestions for music that we can actually use or to compose something, <laughs> particularly let us with know. with cowbell in it, um, that would be great. Yes. <laughs> but so yeah, this is uh, about black coffee and black hearts. <laughs> right. So I saw this paper um, summarized on a website, and that was the title, and so I immediately clicked on it. Obviously. Um, but it was um, published in the journal Appetite, and not Appetite the Rock, <laughs> Mineral, sorry, Appetite the Mineral. Um, and it's called Individual Differences in Bitter Taste Preferences Are Associated with Antisocial Personality Traits. And <laughs> So if you like black coffee, you're antisocial. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worse than that. <laughs> it's actually worse than that. Um, so these are from two researchers at uh, the University of Innsbruck in Austria. And I can't begin to, I will butcher their names. Um, but they've done several studies at over a thousand people and discussing how taste preference actually correlates to personality. So apparently there's been some research saying that people that like sweet tastes are generally more helpful and are very um, empathetic. And then, so this this has actually not been done. So they took off to see if the converse is true and that bitter tastes are associated with antisocial personality traits, which is the nice way to say it. But when you read into it more, <laughs> what they're talking about are Machiavellianism, psychopathy, narcissism, everyday sadism, sadism aggression, <laughs> and other negative personality factors that they call the dark tetrad. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, they subjected, they, they had people taste, you know, sweet, salty, sour, bitter foods, all that. And then they rated them on something called the Likert scale, which is actually a bipolar scaling method to see how positive or negative you respond to some statement. Uh, you know, so, you know, those zero to 10 type things. Right. Um, they, they actually didn't taste it. They just did food preference. They just presented that food and had them rank it on the Likert scale. Um, they didn't do actual laboratory analysis, which is one of the drawbacks, they say. So that will actually be... I think something they do in the future. Hmm. And I mean, I know I like black coffee. <laughs> like <laughs> is probably too too weak of a magnitude of a word for that. But yeah. That's true. It would be a ten. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on a one so, to five magnitude scale. <laughs> on a one to five. A logarithmic scale, yep. mind you. Yep. <laughs> um, so Yeah, I mean I I don't know. Studies like this, I always feel like get overgeneralized and overblown. You know, there was a study that uh, got blown up a couple weeks ago about how bacon causes cancer, so we shouldn't be eating bacon. I love how, how like, a group, everyone's just like, no, we reject that study. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, we don't care about your science. We reject that. Um, this paper is loaded with, I know every time we do a really good, fun paper, we're always like, this is the best thing that's ever been said in a paper. You know, this paper is loaded with one-liners that are really amazing. Um, <laughs> and it starts off with the sense of taste is innately hedonic and biased. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is true. Mm-hmm. And, um, they do a good job sort of counteracting some of those things that you just said, like, maybe this is all subjective because they did, they had almost nine, almost a thousand people, but it's in two different studies of around 500 actually. And in the second study, they were sure to take into account the fact that, yeah, okay, you can have black coffee, 
But would somebody rate it as, yes, I like this, when actually they don't like black coffee. They like coffee with cream and sugar. And so hmm. they didn't want to have anyone, you know, misrepresenting, yeah, okay, I like black coffee. Well, that's not true. You like cream and sugar that has some coffee flavor, <laughs> as my friend Stacy does. <laughs> Um, so they were sure to take out that and so they got rid of sort of those kind of biases and they didn't find a lot of correlation between sort of other personality traits this is a, these are psychology researchers so there's a whole lot of different personality uh, profiles that they use they had these people rank whether they liked food on the Likert scale and then they had them do like five different of the sort of I'm assuming they're the accepted personality test things. And some of them <laughs> looked at this dark triad, <laughs> which is a, <laughs> yeah, it was terrifying. A personality construct that comprises subclinical levels of Machiavellianism, psychoticism, and narcissism. And uh, then they had a pretty popular, the big five test to look at the five different types of personalities. So whether you're an extrovert and open, whether you're an introvert and sort of closed-minded. Um, and they actually worked that into the dark tetrad is what they call it. Um, and so they found that there's really, statistically, there's a really strong preference between these bitter items like coffee, celery, you know, radishes, and having these not just extroverted personality traits, but this dark triad personality traits. Like, you think, basically, you think sadistic thoughts. They use these same sort of scales, you know. Do you make fun of people? How do you feel when you do that? And all this really aggressive questionnaires and things like this. So... Um, it was, wow. yes, <laughs> um, the Machiavellianism would be questions like, I tend to manipulate others to get my way. Um, and they found a very strong correlation between bitter tastes and those personality traits within their sample set of a thousand. Um, one other thing to point out, the participants, they weren't just like university students. And I thought this was kind of cool that they used uh, Amazon Mechanical Turk, the MTurk to find these oh, yeah. participants. Yeah, and I hadn't, I'd briefly heard about this, but it's basically a marketplace where you pay people to take surveys. And so they think that this is actually quite good because they have a robust measure of population. The survey people were from 18 to like 80 years old, you know, and it's not just confined to these university students who are clearly, you know, all higher educated because they had a range like, from, you know, most people had graduated high school, but then it sort of went off from there. They had like nine PhDs that took part in it. Um, so they thought that they got a really good representation of the community in their sampling. So it's not just that, you know, angry college students were taking this, but <laughs> uh, yeah. And so they mentioned, you know, stuff about People that like IPAs might be mean, and that makes me sad because you know how I feel about IPAs. <laughs> <laughs> well, and not only that, I thought it was interesting. So not only were they, associ you know, this bitter taste associated with all these personality traits, but also the predictors of agreeableness and kindness were negatively correlated yes. with the interest in bitter foods as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, that correlation... So, I mean, maybe slipping some hazelnut creamer in your coffee exactly. would make it easier to work with you. Um, I like to think that correlation wasn't as strong, so, you know, but, um, no, I think that's true. Yeah. Those, that caramel macchiato <laughs> creamer is the way to go. So, um... Is it the holiday, you know, spirit and cheer, or is it really that it's pumpkin spice latte exactly. season? <laughs> totally pumpkin spice latte. See, I can't be all that bad. <laughs> Um, the, <laughs> I, I love bitter beer and bitter flavors and Brussels sprouts and all that. Um, they did cite some earlier studies that talk about, you know, that, that taste is very specific and a lot of people don't have the genes to enjoy bitter flavors. They think it's genetic. Hmm. Yeah. Um, there was actually a study on NPR. I'm sure we could talk about it one time that talked about this, um, as well. And so they've done a lot of studies on children who have or don't have like that gene expression and how it affects 
their eating habits like through their lifetime. So this was a was a pretty interesting sort of study that to think that not only you know do these flavors it's just something you like, but it's also something that could be strongly correlated to your personality and they suggest that these these could even be formed like prenatally your tastes based on sort of these gene expressions, which is even more interesting. Yeah, and, you know, considering that when it comes to beers, I like sours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know what that is. I know what that means. <laughs> yeah. But, well, so, I mean, this was a very interesting fun paper. It's a little off the beaten path yeah. mm-hmm. of what we would normally talk about, but it's it's fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's definitely one of those, you know, correlation does not equal causation, and you ought to gotta, you've always got to sort of think about that stuff. But as we understand more about the genome and these you know, expressions of all these genes that we originally didn't think meant anything. It's pretty interesting to think about the next time you sit down with your double IPA. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But, uh, well, before we, before we go to our normal close, uh, I think we, we have to mention some feedback that we got from listener and fellow podcast host, Ben (laughs) Etherington of the Orbital Mechanics. (laughs) I always know that it's going to be funny when he sends us an email, so that makes me happy. <laughs> so yeah, I think we can uh, just trade off back and forth on these. Do you want to take the uh, the first one of these lab comparisons? <laughs> so chemistry labs. Tie your hair back, wear lab coats, no shorts allowed, safety goggles, good walking shoes, wear only certain kinds of socks, don't sacrifice safety for modesty. Yeah, and then, you know, it says physics labs. If you have long hair, you might want to tie it back. <laughs> And then the best and most accurate geology labs. Here's a rock you can lick. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's uh, the only the only science where I know that you can lick something and actually gain useful information from that. <laughs> I'm sure there are other sciences out there that do that too. We just had a fun paper about it. <laughs> yeah. You like that piece of broccoli? You like that piece of broccoli? Mm, you're a serial killer. So what what does that mean if you like uh, halite? Uh, you know, salty personality? Mm, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for sending that, Ben. And, you know, we encourage people, if you have a fun paper or something that you'd like us to talk about, send it on in to us. We really enjoy hearing them. And if you like the show, please go review us on iTunes because that helps other people uh, that would also like the show find it and we're slowly you know gaining more people as word spreads so share us with your friends we really love it yes we would um please send us any funny geology jokes or otherwise because we always enjoy a good laugh um especially geophysics jokes they're my favorite um (laughs) you can send that to us at show at don'tpanicgeocast.com uh we're on twitter so shoot us a tweet at don'tpanicgeo John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of 